from the Townsend Center for the Humanities at UC Berkeley. Welcome to Berkeley Book Chats. I'm Timothy Hampton, director of the Townsend Center for the Humanities and professor in the comparative literature and French departments. Berkeley Book Chats showcase a Berkeley faculty member engaged in a public conversation about a recently completed work. This popular series highlights the richness of Berkeley's academic community. In today's conversation, I discuss my recent book, Bob Dylan's Poetics, How the Songs Work. I will be joined by Robert Kaufman of the Comparative Literature Department. I'm sure that if I had written a book on Renaissance poetry, that the room would be just as full as it is today. Uh, one, one of the fun things about working on Bob Dylan is that you can be sure in any given event that uh, most of the audience knows the work better than the speaker. Uh, and I think in our case, this is definitely true. Anyway, Rob. Thanking everybody for just coming today. Too. And Tim, you actually gave me my opening line, uh, which is, um, what's uh, internationally renowned Renaissance scholar with books on inventing the Renaissance, early modern Europe, French, British, Italian, Spanish Renaissance literature, um, doing in a place like um, Mobile with the Memphis Blues again, looking at the Nashville skyline, uh, sitting in a prison cell with Hurricane Carter, uh, getting taken off the radio waves in 1975 for a seemingly exotic song called Mozambique that's actually uh, being accused of supporting the revolutionary overthrow of Portuguese colonialism uh, in uh, southern Africa, um, winding up on Desolation Row, all these places. This is a, a, an extended way of saying, um, how did you get here? And how <laughs> did you feel like um, you wanted to take up Dylan as a literary critic that was also, those of you who have looked at the book or will, will see there's a very kind of fascinating and depth, deft and um, extremely ambitious attempt to keep the intensity and the intelligence of the literary and music and sociological and cultural criticism going <clears throat> while not limiting it to an academic audience, uh, not trying to either um, lower the level of analysis, but not trying to be exclusionary and trying to open it. All of these things are quite remarkable to do. So I wonder if you could just tell us how you fell into this. How I ended up here. <clears throat> well, um, I mean, I've, I've, I've lived with this music for a long time. And, and you know, if I had spent as much of my life repeating Shakespeare's sonnets to myself as I have Bob Dylan's lyrics, I'd probably be further along. Um, uh, uh, but I think the first, and this will give you a sense of what the book is after, the, the first thing that, um, the kind of first impetus that came to, uh, so there are two moments that I can talk about. The first is that when I read Bob Dylan's memoir, so he wrote a memoir in like 2004, 2005, which is called Chronicles, Volume 1. And um, in it, he talks about uh, how in 1971 he was given an honorary P, an honorary doctorate in music from Princeton, and he he so he's at this point 31, and living he's been living in Woodstock for five years. He's got like four kids or maybe more, and you know life is good. And so he goes down to Princeton with David Crosby of all people in tow, and the president of Princeton calls him up onto the stage and says, "Here he is." the voice of the troubled conscience of America's youth. 
and Dylan says in his memoir, caught again. <laughs> I had thought that they were interested in the songs, but in fact they were interested in connecting me up to a social movement that at that point I had no interest in whatsoever and knew nothing about. And that really struck me when I read that, because I thought, what if we were to go at the songs from the songs? What if we were to, what, what if instead of constructing a kind of narrative into which Dylan gets inserted, and there are people who have done this, and in, in many cases, you know, extraordinarily brilliantly, a narrative of a narrative of the history of showbiz, or a narrative of the history of rock and roll, or a narrative of the history of American avant-garde culture, uh, whatever, an America, a narrative of the history of Jewish mysticism, whatever. I mean, there are all kinds of uh, versions of Dylan. What if instead of starting with that kind of frame, what if we simply tried to get very close to the songs and see what was going on in them and how they work, how Dylan uses the kind of resources of songwriting, the verse form, the chorus, how he uses harmony, how he uses things like repetition and curses and all the kinds of tricks that he has, how, what, what his language is like and how his language changes, how he uses this kind of wacky non-normative version of American English that nobody actually ever speaks anywhere, but that he has somehow invented as our vernacular. Um, what if we were to actually get close to that and then work out from there to try and think about how the formal aspects of the songs themselves in, engage political and social issues, rather than going the other way around, rather than starting with some sort of predetermined narrative. So I, so I started listening really carefully um, to what was going on in the song. So that's the first moment in the kind of genesis of the book. And the other moment is a Berkeley moment. So that's a Princeton moment. The other moment is a Berkeley moment. Um, and I've told several people about this. I was teaching um, a, a, a course in the Complet department on, on poetry, uh, uh, Complet 190. Uh, and we were reading a, a lot of sonnets. And so we started out with the first great sonneteer in the European tradition, Petrarch, the Italian sonneteer, uh, who wrote 366, sonnet, or 366 poems in honor of a beautiful lady named Laura. And um, we worked our way through Shakespeare and Baudelaire and Rilke and blah, 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 and we got up to the present and we were getting to the end of the semester and I thought, okay, I'm gonna really show these students how hip I am. <laughs> so that they will stop rolling their eyes every time I say anything. And so I went to Bob Dylan's 1975 song, Tangled Up in Blue, where he makes a reference to Petrarch, the so-called Italian poet from the 13th century. It's not the 13th century, actually, but it's OK. Um, <laughs> we know it's Petrarch. And so I started looking at, uh, closely at the song, Tangled Up in Blue, and um, at the lyric sheet. And I realized, to my delight and astonishment, that each of the verses in Tangled Up in Blue was 14 lines long and divided into eight, eight lines and six lines, and that there was a break in the perspective on the action right in the middle of the poem. In other words, each verse of, the so each verse of Tangled Up in Blue was itself a sonnet, and the song itself, which has six verse, seven verses, is in fact a miniature sonnet sequence. So Shakespeare wrote 154 sonnets, uh, Petrarch wrote 365, Dylan wrote seven, but you know we'll take it. So, uh, so this, needless to say, got me extremely agitated. And I started fooling around with that and trying to kind of write something about it. And, and it sort of went on from there. And I actually then tried it out on Rob. And I said, is this completely insane? And he said, no, it's not completely insane. <laughs> so that's how I got into it. One of the things that you'll see when you pick up the book, if you haven't already, is that Tim starts out um, feeling 
I think understandably, a certain kind of need to explain why another book on Bob Dylan, and maybe a different kind, but nonetheless, another book on Bob Dylan is needed, why it matters, and also um, why, despite some real reasons, maybe not to write a book on another white male, quote unquote, genius, might, maybe for those very reasons that there are reasons not to do that, the book might matter, and not just to refute those reasons. I wonder if you might want to just talk about your thinking about that as you began, or maybe in the middle of the work. Why it mattered to you to, to do it besides the interest you had when you suddenly realized, my god, these are sonnets. Why write a book about this stuff? Right. Um, part of it was that I, I so I, I, kept, I kept hearing things and seeing things in, so, in songs and saying, wow, I could, I could say something about that. So I mean, why does anybody write a book about anything? You sort of say, I could say something about that, and nobody else has, so maybe I should try it. But you're right, there's the kind of, there's the kind of methodological issue of why you focus on one author and so on. I think one of the reasons, I think the reason why Dylan lends himself to this kind of account is that his own work has constantly questioned many of the many of the assumptions that we make about what constitutes um, art, what the relationship between art and commerce would be, what the relationship between art and middle class consumerism would be. I, I mean, there's no one who's more vicious in thinking about things like stardom than Dylan. And so I felt that it was, I think, I think that he, he himself is a great critic of the very institutions that in some sense he's benefited from. So I felt, that it was, I felt that it was useful to focus on that, rather than putting him as sort of one, one person in you know, the hist a history of a music or of a history of a particular historical moment. One of the things that Tim does um, that he very upfront acknowledges is not entirely original, but I don't think you quite claim, as you probably should, how um, how far you advance this claim and make it in a way that's distinct from the way others have made it, is he thinks about Dylan as a modernist, as a modernist artist and as an artist very conscious of modernism. Uh, from the beginning, even amidst folk Greenwich Village culture, even coming uh, earlier from that, probably in the back of his mind in Hibbing, Minnesota. I wonder if you might want to talk about <coughs> the way you see that modernism in Dylan. Yeah. <clears throat> so. I think that there's, I think that Dylan is, I mean, we can locate him a little bit historically if we want to in a kind of what Raymond William calls a kind of second wave, second wave, or Fred Jameson as well, actually, a kind of second wave or late, late modernism, post-war modernism, when modernism moves from the avant-garde world of Paris and, and, and a, a few small uh, coteries into a kind of international, becoming a kind of international style and begins to be taught in schools and be, begins to become part of the kind of general conversation of art. And we have this kind of second wave of modernist artists who are building on the, many of the discoveries of early modernism, but um, it, often in much more self-conscious and vexed ways. Um, so you know, we can think of you know, Charlie Parker as opposed to Duke Ellington, to take two musical uh, examples. Um, or, or, or we can think of de Kooning versus Picasso, or we can think of you know, Orson Welles versus, you know, I don't know who, Eisenstein. So, so I think that there is a kind of second moment. And so Dylan comes of age in the, at the moment of television, at the moment of the automobile. 
and he's beginning, and he accesses all this kind of modernist culture that's floating around. So the films of Truffaut, the um, uh, the novels of Jack Kerouac, um, the poetry of Ginsberg. He's absorbing all of that kind of stuff, which is a kind of late modernist art, right? Truffaut is in there from the very second Bob Dylan album, where in whom he refers to Truffaut in in the liner notes to his or his third album, actually, the times they are changing. So, so he's reading this stuff early on. He's reading Rambo and Baudelaire from the very beginning. Um, Dave Van Ronk says that when Dylan was uh, sleeping on his couch, he was reading his anthology of modern French poetry and, and basically annotating the heck out of it. So he's, he's reading a lot of uh, modernist art and thinking about it. And I think also many of the kind of discoveries that Dylan makes, his interest in, in, the, in the surface of language, in um, the ways in which words make meaning without above and beyond their semantic meaning, um, the ways in which um, the performance itself can take, take off from the semantic meaning of the text. Um, he's, his interest in the moment, in, the abs in what Rambeau calls the absolutely modern, um, that's, a modernist, um, that's a modernist topos that we think of from Proust or Virginia Woolf's essay on the moment or Joyce's idea of the epiphany, right? Um, Dylan writes a whole bunch of songs in the mid-60s. Of course, he's not the only person to do this, but it's the, this idea of exploring a single moment and all of its ramifications is extremely important for him. So I think there are all of these kinds of big modernist themes that I think it's worth trying to inscribe him into to kind of see where he stands <coughs> and where he sits. It's one way to think about what he's doing. How did you wrap? your mind around, maybe even at the start, the way you were going to handle the interplay of music and writing words. Yeah. Well, that's a tricky one, right? Um, so what we, what we probably know, right? What, what they think, as one would say, right, in popular parlance, they think, the experts think, that Dylan begins with generally with lyrics. And I just say that because um, he, he begins his career not taking other people's melodies, not taking other people's lyrics and inventing new melodies for them, which is what Pete Seeger does. Pete Seeger takes a poem by Jose Marti and you know, slaps it onto a melody, right? Um, uh, Dylan goes the other way around. He takes other people's melodies and writes his own lyrics. So, so it seems to me one has to kind of begin by thinking about lyric. Um, but what I wanted to do was move beyond lyric because that's where most of the people who have written about Dylan, especially in the last 15 years or so, have, have tended to stop. Right? I mean, there's a wonderful book by Christopher Ricks called Dylan's Visions of Sin that came out about 2005. And Ricks has a kind of high Anglican version of Dylan. Um, Ricks is a, who's a Milton scholar and a T.S. Eliot scholar. And you know, he kind of puts Dylan in the kind of high church of England. But, but it's a really smart book. And, but he, he has, he does not, he's not interested in music at all. So what I wanted to do was think about ways in which um, shifts, in, um, shifts in harmony, moments where Dylan seems to use discordant structures where he uses strange uh, chord, uh, chord progressions, where he seems to be using the blues. He seems to be writing a blues, but in fact, he introduces chords that are, in fact, not normally in a blues um, or progressions. Uh, and, and to try and think about which, the ways in which those, uh, or, 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 or even very simple things like, if you, 
maybe it's not simple, maybe it is simple. If you think of something like, like a Rolling Stone, where the band actually goes up the major scale in triads as Dylan is singing a melody that's based on basically one, one note, um, how that tension between that kind of incredible dynamism and the band goes up, right, from C to, a, to F and then it, and to G, and then it goes back down, and then it goes back up, and then it goes back down. I mean, it's a song about, about the rise and fall of destinies, um, and, and the band in some way is mirroring what's going on in the lyric. So I wanted to look at those kinds of effects and see if it was, there was a way to talk about them um, and, and to see if there are moments where, where lyric and, 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 um, and harmony or melodic development seem to be pushing on each other. And also, I wanted to try and see if there were ways in which one could think about how he seems to be learning new things as he goes along. I mean, one of the, so the book has a certain kind of chronology to it. It's a kind of loose chronology. Um, but it seems to me that there are certain moments where he just learns how to do certain kinds of things that he couldn't do before, right? So I mean, there's a moment in the mid-1960s where he realizes suddenly that you can use minor chords as passing chords between major chords. And so next thing you know, you've got songs like Just Like a Woman and Queen Jane Approximate, and he sort of goes wild with this idea. Or there's a moment in 1965 when he realizes that he can write songs with bridges in them, right? He never wrote a song with a bridge in it until 1965. 1966, he writes songs with three different bridges, right? So it's like, OK, whoa, watch this, right? And I think there's a lot of that. So there's a, so I mean, it's, not, it's, it's unsystematic in the sense that I'm just trying to kind of follow him as, I clo as closely as I can. But there are moments where you can see that he seems to be he seems, to he seems to discover certain kinds of things. And then you can watch him sort of explode them or blow them up in certain kinds of ways. Throughout the book, um, you keep insisting in various ways. And then you refine and add and expand the notion as you go about how important the idea of form, both musical and literary. And then finally, uh, not a stable hybrid of the two, yeah. but form as in his case and in the case of the kind of music he's interested in, which goes back hundreds of years, the kind of music he's interested in, and forward as far as he can go in your account. Yeah. Um, can you talk a little bit about what you're, what you're trying to get out about how, how form works for yeah. him and what he wants us to get from it? <clears throat> well, I think he wants, I think he, yeah, at one point I say something like he's a, he's a historical poet, right? And, and, I, and I was talking to somebody recently and they said, what, what, what does that mean? And, and I think one of the things that he's interested in is not only the themes of his songs, but the ways in which the, ways in which the, so the songs work, the ways in which the forms of the songs work. So when I say, I, I say at one point he's an historical poet, that means he's not only interested in history, in other, in other words, in the matter of history, he's interested in how we think about history. How do we process historical material? How do we remember things? What are the forms through which we remember things? Is it legend? Is it cinema? Is it narrative? Is it lyric images? How do those different kinds of things work? And the same thing, I think, when thinking about po lyric and musical form, which is that he wants to think about how, how he wants us to think about, about the meanings that inhere in forms and the way in which form, forms generate meaning through repetition, through, um, through moments of crisis and reestablishment of harmony or tension and release. So I think that. So I wanted to kind of think about those kinds of things as a way of getting away from the, the account of Dylan that says, aha, he writes political music until July 23rd, 1964, and then he stops writing political music, and then he becomes something else. 
Um, that seems to me a really uninteresting way to think about him. And it seems to me that some of his most political music actually is, has been written in the past 15 years. Um, uh, there's an extraordinary record called Modern Times that came out in 2006. This is an album which, that was very controversial because he, it's full of quotations. And people went wild over this. Um, for example, and I mean really blatant quotations. So that, for example, he takes, he takes the melodies of some Bing Crosby songs from the 1930s, like Red Sails and the Sunset, and he simply puts new lyrics on them. And you can't not know. I mean, there's no attempt to disguise this. You can't not know that it's Red Sails and the Sunset. Right? So you say to yourself, wow, that's weird. What, in fact, is this about? And, but these are songs. It's called Modern Times, which is an album about, which is the title comes from the Charlie Chaplin film, which is about the devastation of modern industrialism, uh, modern industrial economy on, on the individual worker. And these are songs about basically the desolation in the American heartland, about unemployed working men, about people who have lost their livelihood and their sense of direction, and so on and so forth. But Dylan doesn't, I mean, they're not sort of, it's not like, hey, man, you know, bring back the jobs, or uh, it's not, you know, uh, there's a revolution, you know, in, in the air. It, it's more a kind of investment in trying to bring to our consciousness the confusion and the pathos of, the, of this particular historical and economic moment. And that seems to me, that's, and, that, and he does that through the way he cites things, through the way he'll slip from one citation to another. For, I mean, for, here's an example. So there's a, he has a beautiful song called Working Man's Blues Number 2 from that album. Um, and there's a moment in the song. So it's a song about a, wor about a working man who is, you know, basically uh, can't make a living, can't earn a living, and he's he's stuck in this rotten town, and and his only consolation is his beloved, and there's a moment in the song where the the singer uh, turns to his beloved and says, uh, he says, my cruel weapons have been put on the shelf. Come sit down on my knee. You are dearer to me than myself, as you yourself can see. It's a very beautiful, very moving moment, and that last line, you are dearer to me than myself, as you yourself can see is a citation of a translation by Peter Green of a poem by the Latin poet Ovid, who in the first century was exiled by Caesar Augustus, for a reason that nobody knows, to the Black Sea. And Ovid was sent into exile and wrote a series of poems called the Tristia, or Book of Sorrows, about how miserable he was <clears throat> and, how, and how unhappy he was and how he wanted to get back to Rome. So you might say, well, what, what's Dylan doing here? Well. He's, for one thing, he's giving a certain dignity to the experience of this working man by saying, you know, we're all of it in this economy, right? Everybody's an, everybody's an exile. And, and this working man's story matters as much as the story of Ovid. He's also, of course, finding a really, really great line from somebody else. So, <laughs> but my point is that there's, there's a kind of political dimension to that, pro, to uh, the formal gesture of citing someone else it, that actually means something. I want to open it up to everybody. Uh, just before I do, um, maybe just as a way of shorthanding uh, something you'll find in the book that's very much related to what Tim's been talking about right now. Um, Tim has a way of, um, with um, a kind of doggedness that always feels light-handed, uh, which is in itself kind of a remarkable thing to be able to pull off. Can I quote you on that? Uh, please. <laughs> 
of making you certain that Dylan has either read everything in every library ever, or somehow found a way, knowing that that can't be done, to put himself in places where he can absorptively get that material from second to tenth hand and sort of know where it's coming from, but mostly know <laughs> that whether he reads it like the kind of dropout college student he was or um, like a person just finding a scrap here and there, that it doesn't matter because what he's guided by is what he'll need for his own work. Right. And it all comes in that way. And um, one last kind of, I, I think, um, uh, kind of tantalizing double bit is Tim has a way in the first third of the book that he carries through, and then he kind of seals it with a different way of going at it in the conclusion. I think Tim's book may be the first on Dylan that besides dropping the name, has um, a really considered non-doctrinal argument for Dylan as one of American art's most important Brechtians. Yeah, that's right. Seriously, and it's a long discussion, a not so long feeling discussion. Um, it goes by with a kind of energetic rapidity but a very careful discussion of what in Brecht's practice actually really matters. And it's the anti-authentic strain through the very beginning of the folky, otherwise authenticity culture, right. that Dylan is there from the start. And near the end, it turns to a very classic and remoded throughout Dylan's career notion from the whole lyric tradition but also spliced into musicality of voice as one of the ways to hear history without assuming that it's just empirical history you're getting. That is, a sense for what history might mean that is always under discussion, if not, in fact, being struggled over. Um, those are just some of the highlights. There's many of them. But, um, and I have a 1,000 other questions written here, but I want everyone else to get the chance to ask them. So please, we'd like to open it up to the floor for people to ask Tim. Or denounce him. E either are fine. Hi. I was wondering if you could talk maybe about uh, what in your mind is an overlooked gem of his or two. <laughs> Overlooked gem. Um, well, there's this extraordinary song that he wrote in 1983 called Blind Willie McTell that, that was not released officially when it was recorded and uh, was released later on a so-called bootleg. I mean, he's basically got this secondary publishing operation of these bootlegs, so-called bootlegs that he releases. And it's an, it's an amazing song that, that offers an, uh, what I think is an, an epic, actually, account of the history of the Old South. Um, and each, each verse ends, and, and each verse ends with a reference to the, this Piedmont-based blues singer, Blind Willie McTell, who is a stand-in for Homer, who, as you may have heard, was blind. Uh, and uh, each verse ends with the line, I know no one could sing the blues like Blind Willie McTell. That's just an, uh, I mean, that's one of the most moving songs I've ever heard, I think. The other thing I would just say, I think, I, I think that, that, that one of the things that came really, um, came alive for me as I was working on this, 
I went back to his work in the early 1980s. So Dylan, as you may know, uh, went through this kind of period where he converted to evangelical Christianity in the late 1970s. And this makes people very nervous. I wrote a chapter about it. I loved that. I was really, I, that was the kind of proud achievement was that instead of, instead of avoiding that part of his career, I actually went head on with it and, and came to really love a lot of that music. But as he sort of came out of his kind of Christian period, he wrote a, a really fascinating record called Infidels, which, um, which is very uneven. Um, but you know, it's, it's about the onset of Reaganism. I mean, it's all these songs about, about corrupt politicians and greed and, and, and hypocrisy. And, and, you know, it feels like it was written yesterday. I mean, just so go back and listen to that. Mike, in the back. Oh, but you have to wait until, and you have to speak into the microphone or you will, or you will not be heard. Thank you very much. Um, the question I have is, you've presented uh, you know, various different ideas about um, you know, your understanding and analysis of Dylan in the context of, say, as a historical poet and that sort of broad sweep. Uh, I also think of him as you know, writing lots of beautiful love songs. And you know, I'm curious if you have a framework for that and if it overlaps with the other or if it's almost a separate framework. That they're very personal songs that incorporate poetry, but maybe they don't talk about the shifts of history. Or uh, That's a great question. Thank you. <clears throat> um, Dylan's love songs are a really mysterious part of his corpus in some ways because uh, many of the early ones are not something you'd want to be on the other end of, right? <laughs> um, and, and I wouldn't recommend like trying to get like relationship help from Dylan's love songs, but but some are extraordinarily beautiful. You're exactly right. I mean, I think so. One of the things that I'm interested in about uh, about Dylan generally, uh, and well, so just one other point. I think one of the things that happens is, especially from say after 1990, let's say, he writes many, many songs that have kind of amorous deceit and or disappointment at their heart. And I think it's just almost like a kind of scaffolding to hang a kind of story on that he, where he's really interested in something else, right? So I think that in that sense, it becomes a kind of conceit in a certain kind of way. But I do think that, um, uh, I do think that the love songs are, um, uh, so w one of the things that's interests me, interests me about Dylan um, as a as a lyric writer, and we haven't talked about this yet, is I, I make the point fairly early on, and I'm not the first person to make this point, um, that one way to think of him is as a kind of collage artist, so that he takes bits of language from all over the place and patches them together, right? So you'll have a song in which you know three lines will be in some kind of bizarre version of working class American English that nobody actually speaks anywhere. Um, uh, they're versions of, of English that Dylan got from what he thinks Woody Guthrie would have said, right? Expressions like iffin and stuff like that. I mean, I grew up in the country, and we, where I grew up, nobody, we didn't even say iffin. We did say aid, but we didn't say, I mean, not even where I grew up. So, and certainly not in Hibbing. So, um, so it's, he's kind of invents this kind of down-home language. And then like three lines later, they're, they're, you know, you'll come across a couplet that's written in the language that sounds like it's a graduate student in rhetoric at Berkeley. You know? <laughs> it's like, 
and, 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 the, and the power of the song comes from the vitality of the intersection of those, different, of those different bits of language, right? And I think that's one of the things that happens in a lot of the love songs. I mean, you take a song like Girl from the North Country, right? So uh, you know, if you're traveling to the North Country Fair, I mean, it's a rewrite re of the famous uh, uh, English folk song, you know, Are You Going to Scarborough Fair? But you know, Dylan already is from the very, which you know, Simon and Garfunkel made it into a hit. Dylan, from the very beginning, Distorts it. Are, so, are you going to Scarborough Fair? So, fair is a noun, and then Dylan writes a song a line that says, "If you're go, if you're traveling to the North Country Fair, suddenly you go, wait a minute, it's not a noun anymore. It's now an adjective. Okay, and then and then the next question is, where is the North Country? Um, since in the United States we don't really have North Country, um, we they, they may in they may in England, but we certainly don't in the United States. We have states, right? So he's inventing a kind of imaginary landscape in which this girl is living. And I think one, and, and one of the things that he often does, and then he says, where the winds hit heavy on the borderline. I don't know what kind of uh, grammar that is. Um, does he mean where the winds hit heavily? I mean, how can the winds hit on the borderline? Since if there's a borderline, the, the, by definition, the winds cross the borderline. So there isn't a borderline, <laughs> right? So that kind of um, linguistic uh, density, right, which I think is really characteristic of a lot of the love songs, is where, what I got most excited about was to try and hear, uh, to use the word Rob used, to hear, try and hear the different voices that are sort of coming through these love songs. I think that, because uh, they, they really are multiple in the same way that you know, Shakespeare's sonnets are multiple. I mean, I really think that it's, it, it's the same kind of density. Just one quick thing uh, as you give the mic. Please go ahead. Tim does this throughout the book, and you get this thing. <coughs> For, for those of us in literary criticism, it's a kind of amazing lesson that you just want to try, will always fail at doing it the way he did it. But there's close reading after close reading, and none of them feels like someone is doing a close reading. What it feels like is someone is in their room in the ways that I would guess lots of people have been in their room listening and going, oh my god, there's, it, there's all these layers to this. Yeah. And it's like, it, it's all this history I've seen or thought I've seen or known about in my life or the life I thought I had wanted to have. And it's inside this stanza. And there, it turns out there's seven levels to it, as opposed to something done on a blackboard or for an exam. And um, he pulls it off in this amazing way. And he's just giving you a tiny bit of what it sounds like in the book. Anyway, please, more questions. Uh, so just picking up on uh, what you just said, Rob, I think uh, one of the great pleasures of the book is that it, you feel like you, you help the reader make sense of Bob Dylan. Uh, but that was actually not going to be my question. Oh, OK. Uh, my, my question is, uh, there's not a scholar of the Renaissance yeah. on the planet who, yeah. since about 1980, doesn't think about something called self-fashioning. Yeah. So my question is, yeah. to sort of in the most hyperbolic way, to what extent are the, are the songs yeah. vehicles for Bob Dylan's yeah. self-fashioning, yeah. if not all the time, then invariably? Yeah. To yeah. well, what extent is it all really about Bob Dylan's self-fashioning? Um, well, that's a very deep question, <laughs> Professor Cascardi. Um, <laughs> I would say. <laughs> I, I would say, so I do have this kind of tendentious moment in the introduction where I say something like, I'm really not interested in Bob Dylan, yeah. uh, whoever he may be. Uh, uh, and, and the point that I try and make fairly early on is that all of these eyes are, are fictions. 
right? So, and you know, it's very interesting to try and teach this stuff to, I, so I've taught a couple of freshman seminars about Bob Dylan and, and the students come in and they go, oh, and they've all, they know much more about it than I do, right? They're all like 25 biographies and they all say things like, whoa, this, uh, this says that she's got long hair, this must be about Joan Baez, right? <laughs> or, you know, it says that uh, he saw her on the street corner and well, we know that so-and-so, you know, and so all of this kind of biogra bi biographical um, attempt. So, I, so what I want to do is not really think about that and I want to think about the ways in which Dylan is constantly inventing a fictional I, right? In other words, every one of these I's is a fiction. Um, and, and it's very, and, and that part, I mean, that's what we would say about all literature. Um, and it, but it's important to take, keep that in mind because it changes as you go through his career. So there are moments where the I is, no, seems to know a lot. There are other songs where the I doesn't seem to know very much. There, there's some songs where the eye seems to think it knows a lot but doesn't know anything. Songs, well, that's actually tangled up in blue in some way, right? Or there are songs where the, where the eye says more than it knows, where the eye may actually be quoting T.S. Eliot without knowing that it's quoting T.S. Eliot, right? So, that, so I think it's important to pay attention to that kind of fictitious aspect of the eye. Um, and as far as Dylan himself goes, I mean, I think that the eye, the, 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 I mean, I just think of him as, as a kind of, it's an ongoing performance, and he never drops the mask. And I think that's one of the reasons why people are so fascinated by him personally, and there's all this mystique around him. And I, I, I mean, I've never found him particularly mysterious. It just seems to me like that he just doesn't drop the mask. Whereas, you know, the Beatles dressed up like in funny costumes, and then they take their funny costumes off, and Paul's Paul again, and George is George again. Well, and in fact, Dylan doesn't really do that. He, and so nobody quite knows sort of what's there. So you all. Every time you see him, he's wearing funny clothes. If he's not wearing a top hat, he's wearing a riverboat gambler's hat. If he doesn't have a pencil mustache, he's got a scruffy beard. I mean, it's just a constant change. And I think it's the same way in the songs. Yeah. There are a bunch of hands up, and I can't even, I, I, there are hands in the back. Albert Askley is in the back. He has a hand up. Uh, but there's a hand here. I don't know what to say. I, I, oh, there's a hand right here. Yes, hi. Yes. Fascinated that you said he was reading modern French poets. Yeah, and I just wondered if you could tell us a few of those. Yeah, left yeah. Book. yeah. Well, there, so uh, I, I'm very interested. So he's very, he knows he, he's read Baudelaire certainly. Um, the figure who I think is very important for him is the is the symbolist French poet Rimbaud, right? So <clears throat> Rimbaud, who you may know, is this kind of rebel poet who ran away from home and uh, to Paris grew up in a small town in northern France, ran away from home to Paris and, and became famous in the cafes of Paris writing this kind of very disruptive trans, tra, transgressive poetry, sounds a little bit like Bob Dylan, and then uh, had a tempestuous love affair with the, another poet named Paul Verlaine and the two of them walked across uh, Belgium together and went to London and then eventually Rambo left Europe and, and, and went to Africa and became a merchant an import-export merchant, and never wrote another word. Um, so R Dylan says, so there's a, there's a, there's a 1965 uh, uh, news conference in San Francisco that you can see on YouTube where Dylan has just, just come off of the famous 1965 Newport Folk Festival where he played with an electric guitar. And, and he's now touring with this group that will be called, later be called the band. And someone says to him, he has to give us a conference, and someone says to him, what poets do you dig, Bob? And, he's and, and the first person he says is Rambo. And he later says, um, 
in the lyric, in the liner notes to um, Desire, it, the liner notes to Desire, which are written by Dylan, begin on the heels of Rambo. So I think Rambo is a really important figure, and I make the argument in the book that he he's read Rambo carefully, and that there are moments where he's really, I don't want to say translating Rambo because he doesn't know French, but he's he's copying lines from Rambo. And uh, I mean, I think in some ways, I think my back page is actually is is a rewriting, in fact, of a Rambo uh, poem. I'm, I sort of make that. So, anyway. so there's some person in the back keeps waving his hand. <laughs> you way in the back. Uh, well, obviously. <laughs> no, just just. Speak your piece. So I, I want to go back briefly to um, to Tony Cascardi's question yeah. and uh, say that it, it seems to me that uh, Dylan has worked very hard to establish his identity as somebody who refuses to be what people are trying to pin him down as being. I think you've said that very well at the at at the outset. That seems to be a kind of negative self-fashioning in a way, but. Um, the other thing is just, and, and this is just as pure amateur, it seems to me that one of the reasons he can do that is he can count on everybody hearing his voice. Yeah. That Bob Dylan's voice yeah. tells you it's Bob Dylan. Yeah. And, and yeah. that that's a sort of fundamental yeah. part of, of <clears throat> yeah. the play of identity. Yeah. That's a, uh, thank you. That's a uh, great observation. I think that's true, and I think that... Uh, but, you know, and, but he's very interested in that, um, that it's his voice, but his voice, what's strange about it is that the voice is always changing, right? I mean, Paul McCartney's still singing in the same old, when Paul, you, you can go see Paul McCartney at the Meadowlands or wherever it is, uh, you know, what are they, what's it called here? Shoreline. Yeah, Shoreline. And, you know, he's going to sit at the piano and he's going to sing Hey Jude. And, I mean, it's not going to be quite as good as it was in 1968, but it's the same voice. And Dylan's voice is constantly changing, and yet it's the same voice. And that's, what's, uh, that, and that's what irritates people who don't like his voice, right? That's one thing. But I think, I think there's, an interesting, you know, there's an interesting moment in his career, and I, and I make this point somewhere in the book. In, in 1969, he releases this album called Nash, Nashville Skyline, um, where his voice is absolutely gorgeous. It's this sort of trumpet-like, you know, he, uh, and he sings these country songs that he's written, and it's very beautiful and very <laughs> polished and so on. And then like a year or so later, he goes back and he's croaking again. And I think one of the points that, that is made by Nashville Skyline is that if I'm croaking, it's because I want to croak. It's not that I have to croak, right? Because I can sing the way I sang on Nashville Skyline, but I don't want to do that. So, so in other words, uh, if I don't want to color inside the lines, I'm not going to color inside the lines, right? So I, I think it's, it's a way of pointing to the arbitrariness of what a voice would be in some way. Except, as you point out, Albert, it's always his voice. And, and, it, and it's interesting in that regard, because you know, if you think of someone like Leonard Cohen, for example, whose voice got very deep at the end of his life. I mean, everybody's voice gets deeper. But you know, Cohen backed himself up with these kind of girl singers who would sing in unison to give a kind of, a kind of presence to his voice that it didn't really have otherwise. You know, Dylan's so, so far not really done that. He's just out there you know, croaking away. <laughs> you, you had a question? Yeah. 
Um, so in, in response to your, your, your comments about Nashville Skyline in 69, yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm thinking about how he comes out with the amazingly titled album Self-Portrait yeah. in 1970 that yep. consists almost entirely of yeah. covers. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, yeah. and I'm thinking about this in relationship to your description yeah. of Dylan as someone who collages and compiles fragments, but here's an early instance in his career where he's saying, I'm just going to think standards and my voice. Um, he then, you know, departs from that for a long time and, and is kind of back at that now. What do you, I mean, maybe the simple question is, is, is why he, he, he's done that or what the interest is in, is someone who's, who is so acclaimed as a lyricist um, and is more so acclaimed as a lyricist than as a vocalist, you know. Why, in other words, why is he singing songs associated with Frank Sinatra, which is what he's doing yeah, now? Yeah, yeah. I, I'm just interested yeah. in your, yeah. your take on So first of all, I, I appreciate the reference to self-portrait. So self-portrait was, you know, his first commercial flop. Um, it was a series of, it was a double album of mostly covers. I, I you know, my take on it is, I mean, I love it because um, he knew what, what people in my generation at least didn't know, but which Petrarch knew, which is that we are our citations, right? What is our selfhood? Our selfhood is what we cite. That's, what, that's who we are. We are the texts that we repeat. And so Dylan said, aha, you want a self-portrait? Right, okay. It's me singing Richard Rogers. It's me singing Gordon Lightfoot. It's me singing, you know, whatever, right? So I think that, so he got that, right? That the self is always composite, right? And there is no deep interiority. So I think that's right. So as far as his recent album, so for those of you who don't, haven't followed him, starting about 2012, right, he started releasing a series of albums in which he basically revisits the so-called Great American Songbook. So Johnny Van Heusen, Cole Porter, uh, J Johnny Mercer, the great songs that we would associate mostly with, with Sinatra. Um, so, uh, and you know, it's, it's really amazing um, that he would do this. And I think there are a couple of things, um, and actually, this may be a good way to end. I just thought of this. So, because I'll, 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 I may, maybe I could even read like a tiny bit at the end as a way of ending. Um, but I think part of it is that, it, first of all, he's got a very big ego. So, Sinatra's gone, <laughs> right? I'm left. <laughs> so, I'm going to take those songs. I'm, you know, I'm old blue eyes now, right? And so I'm going to take those songs. That's part of it. But I think another thing that's interesting is that there's a kind of, um, there's a kind of um, claim of those songs as American folk songs now, right? I mean, you take those songs and you, instead of recording them with, you know, an arrangement by Nelson Riddle and an entire orchestra, you do them with a little string band. That's a different song. And, and so he's taking songs that are not folk songs and in some ways making them folk songs. And that seems to me like a really interesting kind of musicological um, ex, uh, uh, exercise. So maybe you do want to read. Okay. So I thought I would just read, since you know uh, this was not a planted question. I thought I would just read maybe a little bit of the last page uh, of the book because I do talk a little bit about the about these last songs, um, and uh, or about the most recent recordings. And and let me see if I can. I don't want to read too much here. So I have an album called Fallen Angels, and it's and I'll just read a little bit here. Um, and I try and figure out what he's, what he's doing. So Fallen Angels opens with the Car Caroline Lee and Johnny Richard tune, Young at Heart, from 1953. It is difficult to hear the recording without hearing Sinatra's version echoing in the background like a ghost. 
Dylan follows Sinatra's arrangement almost exactly, singing in the same key, beginning in slow time before hitting full tempo, stressing the word young, sitting out while the band plays the first half of the verse on the second go-round. But of course there are the inevitable differences. Sinatra's version sw swings with the optimism of the post-war generation, looking at a bright future of station wagons and dry martinis. Dylan's version is stately and serious. His voice has changed since the late 1990s. Here it has a consistent but coarse surface. On Young at Heart, it turns a lyric about the power of mind over matter into a thoughtful commentary on the passage of time. The final lines are particularly revealing. The published melody ends by zigzagging over a minor third interval, a passage that Sinatra takes with jaunty reassurance, bouncing up and down and up again. If you are among the very young at heart, Dylan's version eliminates the melodic intervals. If you are among the very young at heart, he sings the concluding affirmation on a single pitch. This turns the last cadence from a happy musical affirmation into a bit of sober advice about the secret to a well-lived life. No less striking is the climax of the song where the melody goes high. And I'm not going to try and sing this, but he goes, if you should survive to 105, think of all you'll derive out of being alive. Sinatra sk skates through this with a smile, hitting the climactic word alive with ease. Dylan's recording captures the sound of him inhaling deeply uh, to prepare for the final push. And indeed, his voice wavers on the last note, alive. But he recovers and pushes through by breaking the word up phonetically. He hits the preceding rhyme words with conventional Midwestern pronunciation, survive, 105, he breaks the climactic word alive into a live. <laughs> Here he is doing what the song says. He, um, he see, he's doing what the song says, making alive come alive. At one, le at one level, it seems like a technical trick, a way of jerking his voice up to loop it around the target note like a f the flex in a dancer's knee before she leaps or the hitch in a batter's swing before he swats the ball to left field. And my friend Kate Van Orden has told me that uh, in Nessun, Nessun Dorma, the Puccini or, uh, area, they often, the tenors often do this because they can't get to the top. They often fool around with the sound. Um, but this is also where the past speaks, uh, where, Dylan, where history resonates through the performance. <clears throat> For this, Alive recalls distantly the times where Dylan has turned to the same sound throughout his career. It takes us back to the very first appearance of this improvised diphthong, Ain't It Just Like the Night, the very opening of the third song on Blonde on Blonde, Visions of Joanna. Um, uh, uh, but it evokes as well the, uh, a live version of Idiot Wind, where it erupts out of nowhere. They say I shot a man named Gray and took his wife to Italy. She inherited a million bucks, and when she died, it came to me. <laughs> on Young at Heart, he doesn't push the sound. He adds just enough seasoning to open the word up. This is the mark of the Dylan-esque. This is where Dylan turns language against itself opening it up to a new message, a message in which word and music are bound together into a form of communication that is both and neither. On the highest note, when the breath falters for an instant and the voice wavers, he remakes the word, cracking it open to reveal the life inside of a live. He summons his vocal imagination to leave a mark on the language, on rhythm, on sound itself. And so at last he delivers the song, sending it out toward the stars, young at heart. We hope you enjoyed this Berkeley Book Chat, and we encourage you to join us in person or via podcast for future programs in this series.